Welcome to the 53rd episode of Logan Bartlett Show. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, a partner at Redpoint Ventures. And what you're going to hear on this episode is a conversation that I have with Dr. Toyin Ajayi. She is the uh, co-founder and CEO of CityBlock. Uh, CityBlock is a 1,300-person business that's focused on the Medicaid population and uh, have, have invented a disruptive way of servicing people and actually doing good in the world. And so this was actually one of the more fun conversations I've had. Uh, we go into the healthcare system as it currently stands, uh, why the costs are out of control in the United States, um, how they're looking at innovating and also doing good in the world, politics in the workplace, hiring diverse uh, people within your company transitioning to CEO after initially starting as uh, the president and co-founder of the company. Really, really fun conversation uh, with Toyin. I appreciate her making the time and going through all the all the different stuff here. So I trust you really enjoyed that. Uh, before we get into that, though, just a quick reminder to like, subscribe, share all of that stuff. Uh, we really appreciate it. We want to keep growing, keep sharing. Uh, and doing well with uh, the performance of the show. And so appreciate everyone uh, continuing to get the word out, continuing to, uh, to, to promote the podcast for us. We really enjoy doing it and want to keep growing and, uh, and make this into as big a show as it possibly can be. So thanks everyone for listening. And you'll hear now Dr. Toyin Ajayi. Dr. Toyin Ajayi. Thank you for doing this today. Thanks uh, for having me. So you are the co-founder and CEO of CityBlock Health. I wanted to do this for a while um, for a bunch of reasons, I think, uh, not the least of which, I guess, most recently valued at $6.2 billion. You've raised almost $900 million in venture capital from amazing investors like Redpoint and then other investors like Thrive, General Catalyst. All those other guys. All the, the Tiger Global, Wellington. You have good investors and then you have people like Thrive and Wellington, Tiger, all those other guys. But uh, And how many people are you guys today? We're about 1,300. 1,300. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so all that stuff is interesting and puts you in rarefied air, but then also your business is fascinating. And I remember when I was joining Redpoint, so I joined three years ago and the investment had already been made. And But I was talking to my partner, Elliot, who uh, led our investment at CityBlock about the, the uh, investment when he was making it. And he described it to me and I was like, interesting. That doesn't seem like a venture-backed uh, idea. There's obviously social uh, good elements of this. I'm like, this seems like a great thing to do in the world. And he broke it down and like started going through all the details of how the business actually works and all that. So I've always been fascinated and an admirer of what you guys are doing at, just you know from the outside in. So maybe, can you give us just what is CityBlock? Yeah. And uh, yeah, and where you guys are today in your journey? Yeah, so we're a tech-enabled healthcare provider, which means we provide clinical services and social services. I'm focused on low-income marginalized people, mainly people who receive their health insurance through Medicaid, which is a sort of state-run, um, federally subsidized program that creates insurance options for people who fall below the poverty threshold. Um, we provide primary care, mental health, and social services. Um, and the way our business works is we sell to health insurers that hold those contracts with the state and the federal government to take care of those individuals. And we take financial risk. Um, so we essentially say we're so confident in our ability to find people who've been, you know, marginalized from the healthcare system, folks who are struggling with homelessness and food insecurity, as an example. Um, we're going to find them, build relationships of trust with them in the healthcare system, and then deliver high value, often community-based healthcare. So think primary care in their homes, think mental health and therapy services, think social services coordination all as a way to help reduce the progression of their illnesses 
and reduce their need to go to the emergency room in the hospital, which is way more expensive um, as a use of healthcare dollars than the primary care and mental health and social services. And so we make a margin as a business when we do what we plan to do, which is to drive healthcare spending away from expensive, reactive emergency room visits, hospitalizations, and towards preventative, um, proactive primary care and mental health. We save money because people are less sick. They're utilizing fewer healthcare resources and fewer expensive healthcare resources. And that's the margin that drives our business over time. Um, so we, we currently operate in six markets, um, uh, Northeast, um, further into the South, now in the Midwest. Um, we serve about 100,000 people in, um, in these risk-bearing relationships where we're actually accountable for the medical spend in addition to the clinical care we provide to them. Um, and we've been scaling pretty quickly over the last five years. That's great. Uh, I, I want to go into all of that. There's, there's, I guess, three different components I want to hit. One is uh, the, the care service. Yeah. Then the other is the uh, kind of the industry and Medicaid and all yeah. of that. And then, then the final one is kind of your business where you guys fit in there. But can, can you take me through like a journey of uh, an individual person yeah. that you guys are servicing? And maybe it's a real example, maybe just an illustrative one of yeah. like, someone that you provide care to and how you actually go about preventative uh, care in that way? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so we, we take care of a, a pretty significant number of people who struggle with mental health challenges. Um, if you have a serious mental illness, so uh, diagnoses, you may have heard schizophrenia, sure. bipolar disorder, um, complex trauma, your likelihood of having to go to the hospital, your, actually your risk of death, premature death, is orders of magnitude higher than someone who doesn't have those diagnoses because they have both physical health implications from the medications you tend to be on, people are at risk for diabetes, for heart disease, um, but there's also the risk that if you don't get your medicines, if you don't get the therapy that you need, um, that you're going to have an exacerbation and end up back in the hospital. So imagine a city block member who has been struggling with a mental health challenge. Maybe they ha also have a substance use issue. These things often go together. Sure. So they're using um, drugs off of the street in addition to, um, to having challenges with their mental health. Their typical experience before City Block is that they've got a maybe if they're lucky, they've got a therapist who they have a relationship with. Um, they may have a psychiatrist who prescribes medications for their mental illness to help keep it at bay. Um, they're likely, you know, utilizing drugs that they purchase off the streets. And they often have very significant challenges with social issues, um, housing being a particular one, transportation to and from the doctors. They don't have a lot of money in their pocket. Um, and what we hear and understand from the experiences of people living with mental illness is that they first of all experience like just the fragmentation of the healthcare system. It's almost impossible to get through. I once rode an elevator in a safety net hospital um, with a person who was sobbing. And I said, you know, what, what happened to you? And they said, well, I, I've been waiting for my psychiatry appointment to see my psychiatrist for six weeks because they were booked out for six weeks. I came in today. I had to take two buses to get here. Um, and I got to the clinic and they told me that I hadn't reconfirmed. They left me a voicemail and I missed it. And they'd given away my slot. And this person was devastated. They waited six weeks for an appointment. The average doctor's visit for folks with serious mental illness is somewhere on the order of 40 minutes. You come in, like I said, if you're lucky, once it's every six weeks, and you get 40 minutes of a conversation, your drugs are prescribed, and you're out the door. Um, and that's it. And so you can imagine what that's like for people um, at baseline. It's no surprise then that these folks often don't make it to the doctor's appointment. Um, if you're having to take two buses, if you're having to figure out how to pay for um, childcare for your kid while you're gone, or it's a day off work, right? And that's cash out of your pocket. Um, these folks tend to not access primary care effectively. And so what happens for a lot of these patients is that um, things get so bad that they have no choice but to go to the emergency room. And so 
if you imagine being a person who's struggling with mental health, who's hungry, who doesn't have a warm place to sleep at night, who feels stigmatized and unlistened to by the healthcare system and by the people around you, and it's Friday night and it's cold and you're alone, um, actually the only place you can go and feel sort of certain that someone will treat you like you matter, even for a minute, will actually have to ask you how you're doing and may feed you and give you a place to sleep is the emergency room. And so we've created a system where the hospital is the default place to go for people who really need something completely different. Because what's the hospital going to do? They're going to stabilize you for a night, maybe give you some medicines, and send you right back out into the world again. And so the city block experience is to say, we're going to stop this cycle because this cycle leads to premature death. It leads to a complete waste of healthcare resources. We're spending money on things that aren't high value. And most importantly, it's abrasive and traumatizing to people who deserve more and deserve better. And so what we do is we find people. We go to where they are. We don't wait for them to come to us. We reach out to them in shelters. We meet them on the street corners. We meet them in their homes. We build relationships of trust with them, um, brokered by people who are like them, have a similar lived experience, come from the same communities they come from, don't come with the bias and the stigma that is often associated with, um, with people who access the healthcare system more traditionally. Um, we figure out what they need, and then we provide care to them. We'll come to your house. We'll get your therapist to you in your home. We'll make sure that the moment you say, hey, you know what, I'm ready to stop using heroin. I'd like to try something else. We'll get to your house as, as quickly as we possibly can and initiate you on a medication so you don't have to go through withdrawal so we can help you stay um, uh, away from um, the street drugs when you're ready. And if you're not ready or you you know slip, as people do, we won't judge you. We'll come right back and continue to do that work. And over time, what that means is that a CityBlock member has a relationship of trust with a team member at CityBlock. They've been listened to and heard. They feel respected and dignified. And they're also receiving care primary care, mental health, addiction services that are high value and lower cost than if they were to go to the emergency room over time. And what that translates to is healthcare savings, improved quality, better engagement, and better health outcomes across the population. It's really, it's an amazing service. And uh, I'm sure the, I mean, the proof's in the pudding in terms of your ability yeah. to actually change outcomes and all of that. In terms of like the, the industry and the way that you're able to do this, right? And I think maybe a little bit of a primer on Medicaid is yeah. probably yeah. helpful because you're going at risk and basically putting your money where your mouth is That's or right. putting your service where the money is or whatever the yeah. right analogy is. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Medicaid and how your business fits into all of this yeah. and, and maybe the experience? We talked about how fragmented all of this stuff was for someone else, yeah. but how do they actually go about getting Medicaid and how does this shift in your business model? Yeah, absolutely. So um, every state administers a Medicaid program um, and, and that's supported by federal dollars, um, but also by state taxpayer dollars. And the program is basically designed to provide insurance coverage for people who don't have an employer who can pay for that yep. and who are eligible on the basis of a number of criteria, but largely it's somewhere along the sort of threshold for what that state um, uh, considers the poverty line and um, extra um, uh, inclusion for people who are pregnant and for small kids, for young children. Um, and so that program, state by state, is administered kind of differently. There's some kind of core rules, but it looks a little different. Um, a person is eligible for Medicaid if they meet the criteria that their state has put forward. And if they do that, they can then go out and actually pick a Medicaid plan. That's what sort of the managed care program looks like. Instead of states individually paying healthcare providers, 
more often than not, states are subcontracting those contracts to private insurance companies. Big names you've heard of, United Healthcare, um, uh, Aetna, sure. as well as smaller regional health insurance plans take on, they bid for these contracts and then they become the sort of fiduciary um, uh, um, agent of the state in managing that, that program. So they go out, they contract with healthcare providers. They've got to get a network of doctors and you know, clinics and hospitals, and they go out and become the insurer of record for these members, which means they have to underwrite their medical spend. Um, the way our business works is we go to those insurers and we say, hey, you've got you know, tens of thousands, sometimes up to a million people who you are accountable for providing health insurance to. What we know is that there's a subset of, those, of that population, probably about 20, 30% that are your highest risk individuals. These are folks who have all of the challenges I described earlier. These are the folks who may not be using the healthcare services they have accessible to them in the ways that we would want them to because of stigma, because of all of the sort of challenges in the system, because it's so hard to access them, because they don't have transportation, because fill in the blank, a whole sure. host of reasons that we can describe in more detail. How about we partner with you, health insurer, and we take on that risk with you, and we take accountability for going to find those members and providing care to them. And what that does is it changes our business model, it changes our incentives and creates a business model for us to do the things we do differently. Because instead of being a typical provider in the network where we get paid, you know, 60 bucks for a primary care visit, when a patient comes in, we don't get paid any money. And it's sort of typical fee for service for finding people um, or for engaging them if they didn't show up in the clinic. We've created an incentive structure where we get paid only on the population outcomes. We get paid to do all of those extra things that I described, coming to people's homes, helping them with transportation, engaging them, um, showing up for them when they're struggling, because our overall pool of resources available is tied to the total medical spend and not just to the service we provide. And, and that's why the example of the 40-minute therapy session, yeah. you guys will go an hour or an we hour and a half, what, need to. whatever they actually need, because right. you're actually trying to change the outcome. Right. because. You're on. You're taking the risk of, of bending the cost curve. That's right. right. That's exactly right. So we've changed. We've changed the incentives to align around doing the right thing for the total population, doing the right thing long term for the member. It's almost. I mean, the way I sort of describe it is like, you know, the typical healthcare system, the fee for service, you pay for what you get. Pay, it basically rewards units of healthcare services provided, irrespective of the outcome, right? If I'm a therapist in a traditional fee for service model. I do my 40-minute visit or my 50-minute visit. I bill for it. I get paid. Doesn't matter if the patient goes from my office to the emergency room. Doesn't matter if they never come back again. Doesn't matter if they don't feel any better at the end of the visit. Doesn't matter if they ultimately have a terrible outcome. Actually, I'm not getting paid for the outcome. I'm getting paid for the service I've rendered. Um, we've changed that incentive structure. So we get paid for the outcome. It doesn't matter, frankly, if I spend 40 minutes or four hours or 10 hours over the course of six days. What, if the member gets better, if the patient we're serving gets better, that's what matters, right? And so we've created a different incentive. So we're getting paid for outcomes as opposed, for, as opposed to for units of services provided. Uh, in taking on that, that part of the population, the mm -hmm. highest risk, the, uh, presumably the most expensive, is, is the value prop to United and, and Aetna and Humana, whoever it is, are they, are they excited for you when you come in and say, hey, you can take our most expensive, presumably difficult to reach part of the population? Yeah, that's right, because they, they're struggling with a number of challenges. One, of course, is the cost, but they're also struggling with, it's hard to achieve quality outcomes when you are struggling to engage these pop this population of folks. 
Um, you know, many, most plans are not set up to have boots on the ground, people in the community, um, a whole different incentive structure for caring for them. And so, yes, the value prop to them is we've built a really kind of important skill set and a niche expertise in finding, engaging, building relationships with and providing care to your most complex, highest cost, most in need population. Let's take on that burden. And, and we're so confident in our ability to bend the needle that we'll take on the financial risk for that. And so the business itself, 1,300 people, yeah. how, how, does, how do you bucket the, the, do you call them city blockers? I don't know. City folk. City folk. <laughs> how do you bucket the city folk uh, in terms of like the, the responsibility? Because it, yeah. it's tech-enabled service, right? Yeah. But you actually need to provide the service yeah. as well. So what are the big buckets? That's right. So, um, so the biggest set of component of our teams are folks in the community um, who are providing care. Um, so ranging from our community health partners, those are individuals we hire from the communities we serve, People often with lived experience of some of the challenges our members um, go through. Um, we hire them for empathy, for trust building, for relationships, for tenacity, for organizational skills. Um, but they're not clinically licensed. In fact, deliberately not clinically licensed. These are folks who really just feel like their, their job is to sort of understand the totality of what's going on for people. They form a large part of our workforce. Why, why deliberately not clinically licensed? Because there's, you know, when you've spent your entire like life bumping up against the healthcare system um, and people tell you what to do all the time sure. and it feels a little judgy and often it feels kind of alienating, you mm. know, and um, there's something about the first interaction you have with a person being like, let's talk about your diabetes and why you're not taking your insulin. That feels very different from, hey, I just want to get to know who you are and what matters mm. to you and what are the things that you're struggling with? You might be more inclined to say, you know, I don't have um, enough money to pay my utility bill. And so my I don't have a refrigerator to keep my insulin in. That's why I don't take it. Um, or my, like my fridge is empty because I'm hungry and I'm really focused on working 14 hours a day. And I can't remember to take my meds because I'm exhausted when I get home in the evenings. Those are the types of things that we need to understand in order to build the relationships that we need to then deliver the care. Um, and there are people who are better at that. Um, they're also, it's also sort of a better use of our resources, um, cause we're very focused of course on being efficient and effective to say, let's use our clinicians to focus on the things that they're uniquely capable of doing, diagnosing, managing, engaging in treatment for, um, for the needs that our members have, of which there are many. And let's use other people in the, in the healthcare ecosystem to do the relationship building, the follow up the supports around social needs and the case, case management care coordination. Um, the other bucket of our workforce though is clinicians and we range from primary care doctors, um, addiction treatment specialists, um, palliative care physicians, advanced practice clinicians, nurses, um, lots of behavioral health specialists, therapists, um, nutrition, pharmacists. It's a very interdisciplinary approach to care um, that really leverages um, the, the, the power that you can get when you get everybody in the same room so we're not saying to the patient or the member, go over there for anything that's neck and above. So your feelings, your thoughts, what have you, and go over there for, um, you know, your body. Um, we're, all, we're all integrated and we're all talking to each other using the same systems and tools. Um, and then, you know, we've got uh, around that then the technology to enable us to stratify our population, our understanding with the data of who our people are, what they need what the biggest challenges they may be facing are is, is critical. Like really understanding the population, being able to segment them, um, uh, being able to anticipate needs, being able to prioritize who we see when for what, and then convert that into decision support for the team members. So 
folks aren't figuring it out all the, all the time. We actually have set pathways and protocols and programs that we roll members into based on what they need um, and that, allow, that allows our teams to, to really be in the right place, right time for our folks and to be measured and, um, and, and, and really the performance to be managed against our, our care model. And that's really the use of technology and our data. We've got big teams um, really focused on technology and data really to, to power the model and ensure that we're learning um, over time and that we're instrumenting it effectively so that our teams can be as efficient as possible out in the field. We also provide a fair amount of care virtually too, right? And so we've done a number of really interesting things, recognizing that tech literacy access to, it's not so much smartphone um, uh, penetration is actually quite high in our population. So there's a little bit of a sort of mis misunderstanding of how prevalent smartphones are, even for folks on Medicaid. They, have, they often have phones, but they don't often have access to his data. Um, and, um, and then the trust and the literacy to use those tools. And so we've done a lot of work in helping to onboard people to virtual care. Um, and then we physically facilitate virtual visits with our um, our providers, our physicians and advanced practice clinicians using EMTs and paramedics in the home. So the idea is like, if you have an urgent need, say, you know, you call us and in the evening you're having palpitations and you're not sure if it's your anxiety or if you've got a heart problem, you're nervous, you would otherwise go to the emergency room. We really want to keep you at home. You want to be at home too. Um, we'll send a, a clinician, EMT or a paramedic to your home. They can check you out, get vitals, um, but they'll also facilitate a real-time video consultation with one of our um, advanced practice clinicians or a physician who can aid in the diagnosis and put in place a treatment plan. So it's, it's, it's different from saying, hey, you can do a tele telehealth visit, you can sort of access and get on board yourself. We often people struggle with that kind of stuff. And so we facilitate with, with technology, um, but we also bring our clinicians into the picture so they have real human contact in that encounter. The, the overall mission and what you're doing is so uh, inspiring and impactful and the healthcare system is so broken in, in so many different ways that we can, we can talk more about. Um, I guess a key point is going at risk in all of this, right? And so I, we, we touched on this earlier, but you're, you're actually saying, hey, we're going to do all this preventative care. And we think the total cost of service of the people within our population is ultimately going to be lower because we're going to help ensure that they're they're getting the right level of care so that they're not going to the emergency room, at, you know, just uh, whatever, because they're having the heart palpitations, to use the example earlier. Um, the, the question I had was, when, when you were starting this, uh, why do this as a for-profit entity? Because you worked at Commonwealth Care Alliance, right. right, which was a non-profit, yeah, right. but kind yeah. of a similar-ish mission, yeah, right? right, servicing similar populations. So when you were originally getting going, what was the, uh, the inspiration to, to do this as a, as a business rather than a, a, social, a social good? And then ultimately making this work was actually the belief that you could bend the cost curve right. and actually change the outcome. And I assume you had some data or yep. some intuition that that would actually be the case. I mean, it makes sense to me, but you probably didn't have tons of data that said you actually would be able to do that. So I'm just curious, what was that? decision tree when, yeah. when you were getting going to, to do it this way versus that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, take the first piece, which is why is this a for-profit company? And I think the the fundamental reason is that these models have to scale. This model has to scale. Um, we want to meaningfully codify that there's a different way to provide care, um, particularly for people who are falling through the cracks. And scale requires capital. 
and it requires a business case that is sustainable. Um, I I actually have seen um, through through my career, as you said, nonprofits all the way through. I've seen so many good programs die for lack of ongoing funding. I've seen such like haphazard application of um, of you know of of programs for populations that are based on well, if I can get funding, I'll give you a great example. At a, you know, and this happens all the time in in community based hospitals and clinics. You'll find that they have this wonderful program for I don't know breast cancer screening. So if you test if you t- test positive, you have breast cancer. Um, uh, there'll there'll be a case manager assigned to you. People will have this incredible experience of navigation. If you were the same patient and you had a different kind of cancer, there's no program. Why? Because this team was more successful at raising funding philanthropic dollars to go do that one thing. That's not a solution that scales. That's not a solution that actually bends the cu- curve at all for anybody. Um, I firmly believe that in order for innovation to disseminate, you've got to find a recurring, sustaining approach to funding the work. And in this case, it's obvious. Like there, there's, there's economic value to be had from the work that we do. Why not codify it in a business case that makes sense, that allows it to scale, that frankly dignifies the people we're serving with a, a set of services that we know will persist, right? Because that's, if, if we make money, when we make money, as we continue to show that it works, like we create ongoing incentives and recurring revenue streams to provide, to not just continue the care, but also to fund innovation and R&D as we continue to iterate on the model. It's really important to do that um, uh, because I, I believe so firmly that we've got to be shifting things on a, on a macro level pretty profoundly. And these isolated proofs of concept, these cool projects here and there just won't cut it at scale. Um, I think the other thing is that I, I, I believe in where, what we're demonstrating is that it is possible to marry um, many of the, the things that we love about nonprofits, the values, the mission orientation, the commitment to community um, with a, a really sound business case and really sound economic theory of the case. And to do that, I think, is actually potentially creates a blueprint for, for business building in the future in general, outside of healthcare even. How do we think about building socially responsible companies with a culture and a focus on actually improving social, social good and addressing social good while also staying true to really solid economic fundamentals um, around ensuring that businesses are sustainable and that they make sense? Um, and so that's that was the reason, and um, and it's it, it's and and then to your sort of earlier your other question about like well okay so how do you take the data the proof points and translate that you know I think the the reality is for all the reasons I described there's there's a lot of evidence around all of the interventions we're putting in place first of all it's not rocket science like I just described it to you all makes sense right yeah totally you, you know you got somebody who's like hungry on the streets struggling um, and there's no place for them to go and no one's trying to find them and provide care to them. You push them into a necessarily more expensive place in the healthcare system, and you don't actually change outcomes. Um, and so there's, there's, it's, it's, it's not again rocket science. There's evidence around all of these interventions. There's evidence around food and its impact on improving healthcare outcomes, particularly for people with diabetes and kidney disease and other chronic um, physical health issues. There's strong evidence um, for housing um, as a as an intervention that meaningfully improves health outcomes and life outcomes for people, particularly people with serious mental illness who are street homeless. There's excellent evidence for care coordination um, and collaboration across all of the different healthcare providers um, providing care to a person with complex needs. 
there's excellent evidence for primary care um, and for the importance of preventative care and addressing care quality in improving healthcare spend and utilization. Um, and, you know, had the benefit of having operated in many of these models and innovated in many of these models prior to founding CityBlock. Um, but, um, but putting that all together with, as I said, the sort of aligned and the, the business model that creates incentives to do the right thing by our members created, I think, the, the foundation for a, a, a powerful scale business um, that will in itself continue to create the incentives and the resources to push the envelope year on year and year and year to, to deliver better outcomes to these populations. Yeah, that's great. Now, now this is all within the, um, you're, you're innovating within the system that we have, yeah. right? Right. And I've heard you say, hey, if, if I could wave my magic wand and start over, we wouldn't necessarily yeah. end up in this exact incentive structure. I guess maybe even zooming out because Medicaid, Medicare, uh, employer-based health insurance, all of that stuff is, it is a byproduct of decisions that were made, you know, 100 years ago at this point, right, in some ways, uh, less so with, with some of the newer programs. But are there, are there other areas that you see that uh, that that you would you would change immediately within the overall system that that uh, are, are just low hanging fruit for either the government or how we administer care because we are operating within the confines of the structure we've set up and what you're doing is just a- absolutely incredible but we set up this system and it's obviously not the best system yeah it's know, crazy broken it's broken I mean it doesn't matter who you are right like if you're a consumer of healthcare. You know how awful it is. Oh, totally. I would shop for MRIs, right? Yeah. Or whatever. If yeah. I have to go get an x-ray, I'm not price shopping. Like no. I would anything else. It, for a flight, I would go figure totally. out what the cheapest flight is. But for an x-ray, I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll go there. And I have no idea what the price right. of it is, right? There's so many different incentives and problems that exist in the whole it's thing. It's so broken. So if if I gave you a magic wand or if, I, if there was a request for innovation from an entrepreneur, like, are there any things that just feel like very intuitive that we could actually change uh, now that we've ended up with this system? Yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, these are all sort of changes on the margins, but like meaningful changes, right? Like, so expansion of Medicaid. So first of all, people within, like we need health insurance to access healthcare services, right? Like um, people who are uninsured um, incur significant barriers to healthcare services and significant barriers to well-being. It's just not ideal. And we've created this sort of gap between employer-based insurance and Medicaid. Um, in many states, it hasn't been closed. That's a problem. So, you know, Medicaid expansion, no-brainer. Get people coverage. Let's start there. Second thing is, how do you, how do you address access issues? Um, some of it's a reimbursement issue, um, and we're making progress around reimbursing, particularly behavioral health, um, in a way that's commensurate with the effort required so that it starts to create an incentive for therapists and psychiatrists to actually come out of cash pay private practice and take insurance. That's a problem. We have a real problem when we, you know, the, the majority in most communities, the majority of, of private practice um, uh, therapists and psychiatrists can make the decision to just not take insurance. It makes no sense to them. The economics never, never work in favor of taking insurance. And that leaves out so many people from being able to access the services they need. Um, we saw that the pandemic really accelerated, again, a bunch of kind of no-brainer, somewhat low-hanging fruit opportunities, particularly in advancing the ability to access telehealth services. Some of those are going to get rolled back as we roll back the public health emergency. Why? Like, why? We've proven that it's possible to provide um, a lot of services actually really well and really accessibly for people virtually. 
why would we roll that back? Like that seems like an obvious opportunity from a policy perspective to improve. Um, have been really excited to see recently that um, that Medicaid programs are now allowed to fund more social services than in the past. Um, there's a whole long road of opportunities we could take on there. There's been a historical, very significant um, uh, prohibition for Medicaid funding housing, um, but we know that the relationship between housing and healthcare spend, healthcare needs, healthcare utilization is is like it's so intertwined. Um, and so relaxing some of those rules to enable us to think about all of the factors that drive health and to fund um, interventions in those factors that drive health, food, transportation, housing, would be really, really important. But I've said it and I'll stand by it, right? Like if I was designing this, this system from scratch, like this would not be it, yeah, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's just not I don't optimal. think any, it, it, no one can look at the cost <laughs> and outcomes and say that like this is the best structure, no, right? Not at all. Are there countries, and I haven't gone detailed into looking, uh, I, I know there's many countries that have much better cost and, and outcome uh, the United States does. Almost basically every, every single, like, every developed country, developed country out there. Better. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anyone you really admire, like how they've administered from a country standpoint, how they've gone about doing this? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Fundamentally, I think the countries that do well, first of all, start with a, with a notion that every single human in that country should be entitled to healthcare coverage in some way, shape or form, um, irrespective of their ability. To which, pay. which sounds like such a, um, a political like it becomes so politicized in some way like everyone deserves health care but like even from a capitalist perspective right like let's take the humanity out of it like starting from that premise bends the cost curve of the totality of what we pay That's right correct. it's like it's 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 good business it's quote good unquote business. yeah it's good business it's good business these countries have said it is it behooves us to use taxpayer dollars to ensure in addition to employers and they've all figured out different ways of doing this to ensure that every single person has access to healthcare, like period. So like starting there, and that is a sort of a universal um, uh, truism of all of the countries that perform better than we do in terms of value for dollars spent in the healthcare system. Yeah. And just, just even looking at mortality, right? Like look at the mortality, average life expectancy um, in all of these countries relative to the amount of money they spend in healthcare. And we are a complete outlier in the United States. Um, so starting with coverage, critical. The second piece is that, you know, we in the United States have been really slow. This is such a tension between the way we think about capitalism and the way we think about government, government and, and regulation. We've been really slow to regulate um, parts of healthcare that are very much subject to, um, to market failures. So exactly what you said, right? Like you have no incentive as a consumer to price shop for MRIs. And, um, and we haven't created any way of addressing that information for you as an example. So there's an information asymmetry. Pricing is completely opaque to most consumers in the healthcare system. And why is that? Just because of the incentive structure that comes with it? The incentive structure yeah. that comes with the insurance yeah. system. We've allowed it to become so um, opaque, so rife with opportunities for um, uh, arbitrage, and so invisible to consumers that it's impossible for consumers to make rational choices about how they use their healthcare dollars, even when you're at risk for them through your co-pays, through your deductibles, through your premium over time. So like we, and, and we're just starting to see people chip at that, but right? even things like saying, well, should we put price caps on, um, on healthcare services? Should we actually just cap how much anyone anywhere can charge for an MRI? And this country has been unwilling to do that, right? Um, other countries 
say, yes, absolutely, we should. We know how much it costs to do an MRI. And we're going to say there shouldn't be, you know, we, well, we're going to cap the spread between the lowest cost provider and the highest cost provider. And we're going to cap their ability to make profit on that spread because we believe that access, transparency, visibility to an understanding of how much things cost is more important in ensuring that we're, again, efficient, efficient fiduciary. Um, uh, uh, we have a responsibility to, to the way that we spend our tax dollars. And, and there's some things that are binary in nature that sort of, before I get yelled at from all my libertarian friends on this, <laughs> there's some things that are binary in nature in x-ray and MRI. There's some services that like, we roughly know what they call. We're not talking yeah. about like the totality of doctors being able to charge what they view as appropriate, but there are certain services yeah. that are mostly binary in nature, right? You go in, you get them, and it should fall within a certain cost curve, and it just doesn't. Like it's, That's right. it's 10, 20x, 30x, the cost from if you go to X versus Y, that's right? right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And I, you know, I, I think I think there are ways to do this that are still in keeping with the American libertarian ideal in yeah. some ways, right? Like every person should have a have purchasing power. Like um, we should give people the ability to use the market to create incentives for them to do well. Like these are all things that are I believe important. We believe in choice here um, very much, and you know, a lot of countries that have chosen to administer their healthcare system differently, don't give as much space for choice, even as an example. Um, and so we, we can figure out ways to do it that are in keeping with, with um, the sort of values of this country, but that start to move towards saying, we have an obligation to be better, um, uh, more responsible uh, arbiters of how we spend our, our dollars. And we have an obligation to address the fact that we're just not getting value for the healthcare system as it's currently constructed at scale. As we sort of talk about some of these more um, uh, democratizing access and care and make, you know, government uh, supported plans and all that, the, one of the arguments I've heard is like, hey, well, why do people from Canada come over to the United States to get certain service? And why does it take six months to get uh, an MRI? I don't know what the number is. I'm making this up, but, but people will tell it to me. And I don't know if that's actually factually true, but hey, certain top types of service in Canada take so much longer than mm. it does in the United States. And why do all the best doctors in the world, why do they gravitate to the United States? And do we, are we going to lose that yeah. in going down this other idealistic path that we just sort of touched on a little bit here? What, what, what do you think yeah, about that? Yeah, no, it's such a great question. I mean, I think, and this is what I was sort of trying to land on where I think there's, there's so much that's good about the way that we, this country stimulates innovation, attracts like brilliant talent, and has been for a really long time at the forefront of of medical technology development, of new therapeutics. It's partly like all the things that are challenging also that sort of fuel this, right? Like, which is, there's an ability to make a lot of money um, pushing the envelope in healthcare in the United States, right? Um, there's an ability to fund innovation because the return potential is dramatically higher here than anywhere else. Like, that's why people want to, you know, develop new drugs and sell them in the United States market because the ability to kind of really, really benefit from that is huge. I think there's such a big gap between being Canada or being the United Kingdom and where we are today that there's still opportunity to say, okay, let's, let's align our policy in a way that raises folks who are at the bottom to what we, what we as humans and as a society can say is a, a sort of a minimum acceptable access and quality of care. Let's get them there. While, while not curtailing 
the ability for others with more resources to pay to buy on the private market what they wish. Like I'm, you know, I, I have my own sort of personal feelings about that. I think we can, I think we can do more to kind of get in the middle here. I think it's, it's obscene um, that, that, that some folks have, you know, ready access to skip the line for, we saw this during the, you know, the COVID um, uh, vaccine rush. People were skipping the line um, to get access to drugs. They could get someone to come to their home and provide them a scarce vaccine um, because they could afford to pay for it. Well, you know, the patients I was serving in, in Brooklyn um, were suffering and waiting and, you know, and, and, and had their resources. That feels obscene to me, but I'll allow it. If that, if that, if people care so much about it, I'll personally allow it. I think it's possible to, to preserve that ability and also say that we can and must do better for people who today are totally falling through the cracks. Like it is, it's an indictment on us as a generation of leaders, as a generation of people, I'm sort of making some assumptions about your listener base, but by and large, this is, these are, these are among the one percenters or approaching. Sure. It's an indictment on all of us that there are people today who don't know where their next meal is coming from in this country, you know, the, the most, the sort of wealthiest country um, on the planet. They don't know where their next meal is coming from. And they don't know how to access basic healthcare services, preventive care, primary care, and mental health. Like that, we got to do something. Yeah, differently. it's interesting. Like you can hold both thoughts in your head that you don't want Canada, but also we can do better. Like yeah. those, those two it thoughts are actually it's possible. You know, like, not I, I can hold, and it's amazing. I mean, not to like all this stuff gets so politicized, and so it's hard to even. Do you have to be one way or the other in all these things? But like we can raise the floor and keep what makes it great. Uh, and so I, I, yeah, I appreciate that you guys are innovating within the the system of all this stuff to help raise the floor and and have socially good uh, benefits, but also in a commercial application, right? I, I think yeah. that's a, you know, it's a great thing and hopefully we can see more businesses like that. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, um, your personal journey. So you were born in the United States, mm -hmm. but grew up in Kenya. That's can, right. Can, can, you, can you take us through like how you ended up uh, here to, I, I, I get the feeling you're maybe an accidental entrepreneur, maybe. Oh, or hundred yeah, okay, percent. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know if that was going to be if you were going to disagree with that. No, 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 yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. no I assume no, no, no. you don't, you don't become a doctor and then go work at a nonprofit. No, this no. isn't the, uh, the, the blueprint. Like, I'm going to be a CEO of a venture bank company. Yeah, like, exactly. I don't even know what those words meant. This is, this is not the blueprint people follow generally, yeah. but, but can we talk a little bit about how, yeah, the, the journey along the way? Yeah. I mean, briefly, you know, my parents came to the United States from, from Nigeria. So first generation American um, uh, for, for grad school um, and in Boston, um, had me and my sisters and then moved to Kenya um, to do for their careers. My dad is a physician, a public health doctor and, um, and, and was working in global health. We ended up there, um, went to school there, um, finished high school there, and then I uh, came to the U.S. for college um, uh, at 17 and sort of started to figure out what, it, what this is like. Um, uh, and it was, it was an interesting transition and then, um, continued my education, did a master's degree in England, went to medical school, um, and then moved to West Africa because I was really interested in, in global health and in sort of really my, pa my career has always been about improving the quality of care, improving health outcomes and access to care for people who are marginalized. Um, that's just, that's just always been my thing and we'll forever continue to be my thing. Was that, was your father in a similar like line of service? Uh, obviously he was a physician, yeah. but was that something that like you grew up around? Yeah. So I grew up in Kenya at the height of the AIDS epidemic. So I grew up in the, you know, eighties and nineties, um, uh, seeing people on the streets begging for food, 
um, who were visibly suffering from AIDS. Um, I grew up at that time, the life expectancy, average life expectancy was about 40 years. Um, and, and so this, and, and, and I went to private school, you know, my parents um, had resources. And so I would drive to school looking at kids who looked just like me, who weren't going to school, who had no clothes, were hungry, and, um, and had lost their parents um, in this horrible, horrible epidemic. And I also remember um, watching on TV the debates in the global public health space about whether they should make antiretroviral drugs available to Africans when they first became available. And it was a public discussion. Well, their lives are, I mean, the, went on the, the, the sort of the, the, on the lines of their lives are pretty bad anyway. Why bother? Um, there's a prominent economist who basically made that argument. Economically speaking, saving one of these lives does not make sense globally. Um, there were arguments about, well, they don't really understand how to tell time. How could they possibly take a drug three times a day? Um, there were arguments about, well, it's just too expensive to even begin to think about how making those drugs available made sense. And so that was my upbringing. And, um, and my parents were very transparent. They themselves had not, not, had not grown up with a lot of resources. Um, that, you know, I, my sisters and I had done nothing to deserve a private school, um, you know, three meals a day, uh, safe and warm home. We just happened to have lucked into it by virtue of, you know, who we got born to and what the circumstances were that we lived in. And so this idea that, like, that it could be one of us, any one of us, truly, lack of, like, chance, circumstance, whatever, um, we could just as easily be with the patients I serve is very, like, very sort of true to me. I, like, I really feel that and I know it. Um, and the notion of service was something that I was raised with um, uh, and has always been at the forefront for us. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's impossible, I think, to, to see what I saw as a young person and not realize that we all have an obligation to care for others around us and that we're interconnected in much more powerful ways than we know how. Um, it took for many people, I think in the U.S., it took the pandemic of, of, of COVID to realize that like my health is, is connected to your health. Um, if, if we're taking the subway um, with hundreds of thousands of people who didn't have access to a vaccine or chose not to take it, my risk is, is increased. If I am you know, living in a system in which we're breathing the same air, we are interacting with each other, like we have to recognize that we are all intertwined. Um, that was very, very obvious to me growing up and and has always been something that's guided me in terms of the work that I do and, and the places I gravitate to. So you grew up around that, and I'm sure that was a very impactful experience. Mm -hmm. And then you went to school at Stanford in mm -hmm. California. And then what did you, were you pre-med? I was pre-med, yeah. Pre-med. And yeah. so, so you, you knew you were going to be a doctor or at least hoped you were going to be a yeah. doctor, I guess. And so then you, you uh, then did you go study medicine in the UK? Was that what we're at? You're yeah, over there? yeah, no, actually, no. So I first, I finished um, uh, at Stanford and I actually worked for a year in San Francisco um, uh, on an HIV, on a program that was basically providing small grants, federal grants to HIV, AIDS prevention and treatment programs. I was so, in retrospect, I don't know why, I was so lucky to get this job. Um, I was, you know, young, super unqualified. <laughs> um, and my job was to basically administer a grant program that was giving like micro grants, like truly like $5,000 grants to community-based organizations um, supporting people with AIDS um, uh, and, um, and to provide technical assistance. And I was the technical assistance. Like, and I was like, I don't have any skills. What, what yeah, are, yeah. really? Um, but I was helping these little nonprofits like figure out like supply chain. You know, how do you get, if you're a food pantry, 
how do you make sure you've got the right supply to like manage the demand and how do you map that over time? Like, like stuff like that. Like that was my sort of job. And it was so rewarding and so interesting. And I was also volunteering as a sort of aid slash companion to, to people with AIDS in San Francisco. And this is in the early 2000s. Um, and, and so got to start to see like this, this different face of the same disease um, that had been so pivotal in my upbringing and to see honestly the ways in which the same problems existed. Now we had antiretrovirals, um, but these men, they were primarily gay white men who I was caring for and, and being in community with were isolated, stigmatized. They'd lost many of their loved ones um, during, during the height of the epidemic. Um, and they were also struggling with social needs. They were struggling with housing, with food, as rent started to go up in San Francisco. Um, and, and so seeing that other shape of this um, was really pivotal for me because it started to help open my eyes a little bit to the inequities in health out access and outcomes in the U.S. that I hadn't experienced um, as a student, you know, on my like little student insurance program. You know, it was a very different perspective. It's, it's interesting to have the same disease attack two different... Mm -hmm. Skin color, uh, probably economic, yeah. like access to care, all yeah. of that, right? I, I imagine that was pretty pivotal in seeing really the experience of uh, of that and probably how care was administered. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so I, I know Sierra Leone was an impactful experience yeah. for you. Uh, it, you. You ended up over there. Can you, can you talk a little yeah, bit about so, that? Yeah. So, um, so after San Francisco, I moved to England. I did a master's degree first in international development because I was really interested in learning some of the skills I hadn't learned as a pre med. Basically, you know history, economics, um, uh, sociology, just trying to get this sort of broader global context for what I was seeing. Um, and then loved England so much, I decided to stay for medical school. And so I was there for four years um, and, um, and got to see a socialized healthcare system, which had its pros and cons. At the time, what I loved about that was um, just the focus on, on primary care and preventative care. In the UK, particularly at the time that I was training, primary care doctors, gen general practitioners, were the highest paid doctors in the healthcare system. And they had power to, to determine um, how healthcare dollars were spent downstream, right? Like they owned the referral kind of um, uh, decision. Um, they were, the way that they provisioned and funded the health system was actually on a regional basis that was risk adjusted for the complexity of the population. And then the pool of resources were then spent across specialty and primary care and hospital and acute care with the understanding that everyone should have a primary care doctor and that they were accountable for outcomes. And so seeing that was actually a really interesting um, uh, playbook for how one might orient a healthcare system around primary care, very different from the US, but I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I was at the time spending a lot of time overseas um, during my training, um, really just getting a different perspective and starting to um, uh, think about what I wanted to do next. And um, spent a couple months in Sierra Leone um, as a medical student um, and was pretty blown away and pretty traumatized, I have to say, by just how broken things were then. This was about a decade after the very sort of well-known civil war that the country had gone through. Healthcare system had been completely decimated um, and outcomes were terrible. And I was just struck by how much opportunity there was, but also how painful it was to watch people suffer for things that we knew how to prevent and treat. And at the time, uh, the infant mortality rate was one of the highest in, in the world. And, uh, and I was working at a hospital where one in four, one in five kids that came into the hospital didn't make it out alive. 
Um, and, you know, on thousands of admissions a, a week, we were just seeing this just trail of despair that was really pretty heartbreaking. And so I decided, along with um, a couple other friends that I'd met over time there, to, to, to spend you know, dedicated time building a nonprofit um, to try to improve the quality of healthcare that was provided in this, in this hospital. We picked one hospital, partnered with the government, uh, raised, raised money, and started to, to just do health system strengthening work, which is at the time was saying, there's no running water, there's no electricity, there's no blood bank, there's no intensive care unit, there's no oxygen supply. Let's just get this to work like a hospital. Um, and, um, and that was a really interesting experience for me. It was, it was my first sort of entry point, I think, into real operations and realizing that there's, there's one thing to kind of know medicine, which I did. I finished medical school. I knew how to diagnose and treat. But it's a very different thing to actually make, make outcomes different um, if you don't have the tools and resources to do that. One of the biggest lessons for me was um, after several years of doing this work, and I eventually came back to the U.S. for residency, but I would go back and forth. Um, and the nonprofit, you know, we hired a staff. We it sort of continued to scale. Um, and a few years into it, I went back and started looking at a retrospective on our mortality data. I was really, I'd always been really just obsessed with this idea that, you know, one in four, one in five kids in the hospital didn't make it out alive. Like, we've got to change this fundamental KPI, like mortality for a hospital that is serving, you know, pediatric population. And I went and looked at the data. And what we found was that despite the, the, the complete transformation in terms of the quality of care we were providing, and the resources that were at the hospital over the last, I don't know, four or five years, we had made no dent in mortality. And I was like, it was, it was like inexplicable when, that, when I finally got the numbers back. And I was like, you've got it. And this was like, you know, manual chart reviews sure. or pulling. So it took forever. Yeah, you didn't have a but data like, scientist. There was no yeah, data yeah, scientist. I mean, yeah. like, it was a room with just like charts stacked in the back, right? But like, it was, it was not clear to me that we'd actually changed mortality rates. Um, and so then I started doing like actual chart reviews and I started looking through the charts and I was like, I don't understand what's going on here. These kids were coming from communities that I could, I could throw a stone at. They were so close. They were walking distance from the hospital. Hospital was free. We had running water, we had electricity, we had doctors on call. We started a residency program. We had an ICU. Like this, this should work, but it didn't seem to be working. Um, and so we started to try to problem solve this and ultimately decided to, to do some focus groups in the, in the local community to say, like, help us understand what's going on here. Um, uh, and, um, and there were all these hypotheses that the doctors and nurses had, had started to throw up in the hospital. Um, people are uneducated. They don't know when their kids are sick, and so they're ignorant. They keep them home too long. Um, people don't care. They have so many children, they can't care about them. Um, they don't listen when we tell them what to do. Um, you know, the sort of the usual sort of subtle and not so subtle stigmatization of the sick person which I saw by the way, all the time in America, right? Like we call our non our patients non-compliant. We talk about the, you know, the IV drug user who came in with this and left against medical advice. All of it's laced with this idea that it's kind of their fault that they're sick. Um, it was that language. It, it, isn't it like two and a half times the language gets used about like non-compliant right. or something with people of color that's versus, right. yeah. That's it, right. It's all like, it's, it's all just code. subtle, like sort of it's racism. Code. That's, yeah. It's code. It's yeah. totally code. And it's not even that subtle anymore. You know, yeah, once yeah, you know yeah. what to lesson sure. for it, you know, you're just like, okay. Um, and so, and so that was what, what was hearing from, from my colleagues in the, in the system. And so we said, well, but this is also talking. probably people of color talking about yeah, their I mean, patients. It's not just, yeah. it's, it's, it's not just, this is the thing. It's like, humans find a way to sort of create a, an us versus yeah, them dynamic. Other, to other people. Other people, no matter what. And yeah. it, it happens across every dimension you can imagine. Mm -hmm. So here we've got healthcare workers in Sierra Leone saying of the people that they're serving, 
they just they're too ignorant they didn't they don't understand when their kids are sick they don't listen to us when we tell them what to do it's code for it's their fault yeah see the same thing in you know in the u.s you see it's just it's just pervasive right this is what people do um and so uh so started doing focus groups and i would just i went into the community and i think we said on radio like invited people to come in and talk to us and i started with asking i invited uh, anyone who identified as a caregiver of a child to come and talk to us about their experiences and they and i said so how do you know when your kid is sick and these moms and aunties, they hadn't been to school. They couldn't read or write. They were like, when their body's warm, when they're not eating as well, when they, you know, sleep too much. Like, they knew exactly what the symptoms were. When, they, when, when their chest goes like this, they would demonstrate to me. I was like, these people know exactly when their kid's sick. They're not ignorant. They know exactly what's going on. Then I said, well, what do you do when your kid is sick? And they said, well, we, you know, different things. I go to the herbalist down the street. I go to the birth attendant who, who delivered my kid at home. I ask my cousin, I go to my grandmother, so-and-so in the neighborhood is known for making uh, potions and, and, and tinctures, so I go to them. I pray, I take them to church. I said, okay, that's interesting. Why don't you go to the hospital? Well, everyone who goes there dies. When I get there, people are super mean to me. They don't ask me why I'm here. They don't listen to me. They wake my kid up in the middle of the night, give him medicine. They won't explain to me what it is. Um, they make me feel like it's my fault. And they, they're, they're rude. And I was like, wait a second. So all the things we just did are the reasons why people are choosing something else over this hospital, despite the fact that it actually could be life-saving. And that was such an unlock for me. It seems really subtle, but it was such an unlock for me. It's like, there's something about not just the what, but the how that is critical to changing outcomes. If we don't show up with respect, we don't treat people with dignity, we don't make them feel like they matter, they will choose something else. And and, and it, irrespective of if they are poor, irrespective of if the, they're, they're at death's door, irrespective of if this care is actually pretty good, like you can't say you're providing access simply because you have a building that sits in the community. You actually have to show up and, and mean it. Why that was so important to me was I then found myself in Boston, um, you know, bastion of medical education and medical technology, this incredible place where you know, if anyone over in, across the world would want to be there for life-saving treatment, and yet the patients I was seeing in the community health center, I saw people not infrequently who hadn't seen a doctor in 30 years. Um, and when I said why, it was, well, the last time I went there, I was pregnant with my kid. I was struggling with addiction. They took my baby away, treated me like I was really like scum of the earth, and I swore to myself I would never go back. Um, why didn't you go to the doctor? I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what they're going to say to me. I'm afraid that they won't listen to me. Why did you leave against medical advice? Well, I've got a kid at home with autism who I have to pick up from school. And when I told the caseworker, they told me that it was my fault. And I, I, basically what I was saying was I'd rather die. Like it was the same story over and over and over again. I was like, we have the pieces, but they're not translating into an experience that is actually engaging and engaged and frankly worthy of the people we're trying to serve because it's us and them. And because we've created so many barriers to actually like showing up for people and like listening to what matters for them. Um, and so that Sierra Leone experience was like, it was so resonant here and has been a theme for me as we've built City Block is to say like, it's not just, do we have the doctors? Do we have the medications? Do we have the protocols? It's how, how do we show up? How do we actually earn the right to care for people? How do we make them feel valued? so that they want us because people will vote with their feet. 
And when a patient goes to the emergency room at 10 o'clock on a Friday night, instead of going to the psychiatrist six weeks before, they're making a choice that is rational for them. And that choice is, I would rather wait until things get so bad that I have no choice but to go to the emergency room than subject myself to indignity, disrespect, the cost of taking a day off work or of finding childcare for my kid or the experience of being lectured at for 40 minutes and not having my problem solved. Like there's something there that made them make that choice. And we have to understand what that is. And we have to be accountable for creating a preferential option that actually is aligned with better outcomes for them. And so from, from I, I, I'm sure that informs so much of how you uh, have built an architected city block. And h- how did you actually decide to start the commercial entity to, to embed a lot of these learnings into uh, servicing the Medicaid population? I mean, I'd love to say that this was like, we made an intentional choice and then we like, like it's just, that's not how it happened. Sure. Like I had no idea what this path would look like and certainly didn't know that it was even an option available, right? Like I'm a doctor, I didn't go to business school. I was ironically in Silicon Valley as an undergrad at the sort of height of, you know, tech. And I had no, like, I had one friend who was a software engineer. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I didn't understand anything about this ecosystem. So it was not an intentional choice um, for me. Um, My co-founder, Aya, however, I think was really starting to see and understand where the opportunity to capitalize the type of company we wanted to build was. Um, And so with him, had the opportunity to come to Sidewalk Labs in New York. Um, so we were both working in Boston at the time. Sidewalk is, um, uh, was sort of part of the Alphabet family um, of companies and was really thinking about doing things differently in innovation, using technology to improve quality of life for people living in urban s- in settings. And they had a number of different projects, but were also looking to incubate a business specifically around healthcare. And so when it looked like we had the opportunity to pitch them on, let's do this in Medicaid and let's take um, you know, technology, data in particular, analytics um, to help inform and help build a business that was focused on the Medicaid population because it, to that point, had been pretty untapped, wide open, like huge, huge, huge TAM, right? Like these are millions of people um, who receive their insurance through Medicaid. Very few companies innovating, if any at all, innovating in that space, like huge opportunity to, to grow and scale a business. Um, you know, there was inefficiencies that we described in the sort of incumbent um, status quo. Um, there's massive TAM, real opportunity to create, um, to create economic value and to create a, a, a very different business model. Like that's, that's a ripe place for entrepreneurship. And so, you know, if I was sort of thinking about this from first principles, probably would have landed in the same place, but like it just sort of happened. Um, and, um, and in some ways, like I've been sort of carried along that wave ever since. It's a, a fascinating journey, sort yeah. of like, uh, yeah, the servicing all of that. So you were originally president of the, the business and Aya was the C- CEO. And Aya has been public about uh, his battles with depression over the years. And he probably a year ago, 18 months ago, yeah. took, took, took a step back, six yeah. months, wanted to figure out, prioritize his own mental health as you guys were, were building, uh, building the business. Um, at some point, I, I, we've talked about uh, having that conversation from his perspective mm-hmm. of all this. But mm-hmm. from from your perspective, to go from uh, co-founder president to, I think there was an office of the CEO yeah. originally set up yeah. with Andy Slavitt and a few other people that were involved there, and then ultimately becoming CEO. Uh, what was that? I mean, having someone that you, you started, you talked about I was sort of the, the 
commercial one that yeah. wanted to go after this problem originally. What was that like from your perspective to sort of have a, a co-founder step back and then he, he's still a board member today, yeah, right? right? So he's still involved in the business, yeah. but not necessarily day to day. So we'd love to hear that from your perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe to contextualize it, like, and, and I think founders really know this, like the, the entire experience of founding a company, especially a company that grows as fast as, as we have, as we had is like, it's constant change. Um, and you know, yes, I had the title, but like my role shifted probably every six months and has done, and will continue to do so I think sure. in the business. Right. And so I'm, I think part of, for me, what has been um, the most constant part of this journey has been change and adaptation to change. Um, there's something really wonderful about building something with other people um, and and doing so with with people um, who share your mission and your vision and your values and who create kind of that con- like confidential safe place to like problem solve. It's really special. Like I'm a, I'm a team sport kind of person and I love teams. Um, and so from that respect, I think, you know, having someone, one of, one of our founding team members, like, you know, the, per, the person who was sort of arm in arm, um, stepped back from the business was hard for sure. Um, and also, you know, I think we're so fortunate that we've built a team of others around the business who were committed and, um, and just brilliant. And so I've, I've, I've really had to sort of build and rebuild relationships over the entire course of the business. Um, uh, but it's been, it's been par for the course in some ways you know it, yeah. it doesn't feel like this sort of big dramatic shift yeah. so much as it's, it's an evolution and um and i'm sure the next evolution will come in some way shape or form probably less visibly to the external world but as we shift and grow the business um as i bring on more folks on the team as we expand and and continue to just you know really advance what we do um my day-to-day shifts all the time and um and that's i think appropriate for for this stage of the company. Yeah. Now, on the hiring side, uh, I'm sure you have people that are very mission-driven uh, that that uh, want to work at CityBlock and are, are very passionate about CityBlock. Um, we've, we've gone through this period of debate about uh, politics in the workforce, and uh, I, it was large. I mean, I guess Me Too was originally, and then I think George Floyd was a big reckoning moment for, for people. And then we sort of saw some pushback from different executives, uh, Brian Armstrong from Coinbase, Toby Lukey from Shopify, that sort of said, hey, some of these things are getting uh, too divisive within the, the company culture, and, and, and we're going to put these social issues to the side and not allow discourse around that. I imagine that wouldn't fly uh, particularly well from, from uh, within the company or your leadership style. How do you think about the balance of um, having people that are mission-driven and passionate about the, the cause of what you're doing? Uh, and also allowing the appropriate discourse to exist within the organization about the host of topics that are that are going on at any individual point in time. It's so interesting the extent to which things that I consider, and we're a healthcare company, right? Yeah. So it's so interesting the things, the extent to which things that I consider, and I think that against the data objectively would support, are just health issues have become politicized, right? And so um, and. And so I think the approach that I've taken is to say, let's first, as a company that focuses on healthcare and health outcomes for marginalized people, that is at the forefront of really not just appreciating, but also intervening on the totality of factors that drive health and health outcomes for our population. We got to talk about this stuff. We have to talk about racism. 
and we have to talk about um, uh, barriers to access to housing. We have to talk about prejudice and bias because they impact health outcomes. Right? It was just what last week that the New York Times published on the front page data that supports the notion that show, demonstrates that black families and black health outcomes are worse than for white people, even when even even at the highest level of income, right? And that's not because there's something genetically about me that means that I should be more likely to die in childbirth, as an example, than um, than a white woman with the same education, same medical history, same risk factors as I have. Like there's there is nothing except our society and the way that we think about black people, as an example that would determine that outcome. And so we have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge it. We have to look at the data. We have to grapple with it. And then we have to ask what we're going to do about it. Um, so when, you know, George Floyd's murder happened, um, we didn't get into a big debate about, you know, um, uh, any of the politics. It was, a fun, it was a moment of grief for us because our workforce reflects the population whom we serve, which means we are significant, predominantly actually people of color in our workforce. There are people in our company who personally feel what it feels like to be um, at risk of death anytime they interact with the criminal justice system. Like they feel that every day. That's all I need to talk about. Like there's I, like that was it. You know, we have to talk about it because people are coming to work with grief and with fear and with pain and with the recognition that this translates into the horrible health outcomes that we're seeing in our population trying to address. Um, you know, same thing when when um, when uh, we saw the the repeal of, of Roe versus Wade, right? This is a health issue. We know it's a health issue. There's plenty of data to demonstrate that access to abortion is a a health issue that, again, disproportionately impacts lower income women, lower and people of color, and directly translates into our ability to care for our people um, who we're accountable for caring for. We need to talk about it, um, and without getting into a political debate, but being fact-based um, and being, uh, and really being sensitive to what we know as, as a society about what impacts health outcomes, we have to address these issues and talk about these issues. Um, and so that's, that's how we've approached it. You were cognizant of all these things, right? Yeah. And believe them. Because yeah, of the but, but, but that's not to say we don't have people with different political beliefs. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Like, I don't think who you vote for um, on principle or the issues, the other issues that you care about preclude you from also caring about access to healthcare. Yeah, yeah. And preclude you from also being able to engage in a conversation about the determinants of health outcomes. Uh, or preclude you from being able to participate in a, you know, multicultural, multi-ethnic workforce. Yeah, yeah. You know? All of that, I guess there's there's elements of self-selection probably and yeah. be, because of the community you serve and because of the the uh, representation that that exists within the company, there's probably elements of, of self-selection that exist in some of those beliefs. But it sounds like you have people across political spectrum from a viewpoint standpoint, right? So how, how do you think about that within the company? Like, uh, is it is it just the people that also recognize the evidence-based considerations and also have empathy for, you know, people of different races, different backgrounds, different yeah. income levels, all that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I think, you know, there's obviously the sort of, we've really managed to politicize a lot of things that, um, that, that 
I, I frankly don't think, I don't think have space in the political discourse. It shouldn't be political, politicized in that way. Um, and, and so, you know, we have, and, you know, I spend time with people with very different sort of political views than I have. That doesn't preclude them from also caring about and recognizing the, the ways in which race and racism, access to um, education, all the things we talked about impact health outcomes. Doesn't preclude them from engaging with evidence-based clinical practices for reproductive health. Like those two things are not mutually exclusive at all. Um, I think we sometimes in the media like to sort of portray them that way. And I think there's a lot of folks who frankly peddle in, um, in discourse that makes it seem as though those two things are like mutually exclusive. They're not. Like caring for, um, caring for the health and well-being of people who don't necessarily look like you or don't necessarily share your same experience, but who are human and who are deserving of care is not a political issue. Caring about understanding the evidence about what drives health outcomes and addressing those factors, that's not a political issue. And that's, that's where we, that's what sort of where we focus. And so I think we've been able to create an environment where folks from very different backgrounds and walks of life, def very different political views um, can come together around a shared and collective mission to improve health outcomes for people with low income, for people who are marginalized, for people with mental health challenges and physical health challenges and social challenges, and to do so in a way that's evidence-based. That's it. That, that is the prerequisite for participation. Um, and then we, you know, we require people to engage in respectful dialogue, um, even around their differences. And what we found is that it creates an environment that is inclusive, that is promoting of diversity across any, every dimension you can imagine, and that allows people to sort of bring their best selves to work around a very focused mission that is to improve health outcomes for the population who we serve. What about on the hiring side? So I think before, before we got going, you said 70% of your uh, employee base are uh, people of color yeah. and 70, about 70% 70 women that's as right. well. Uh, that's amazing. And I, I have uh, companies that, that I work with that struggle to get to even a quarter of, of you know, gender, let alone race, right? Yeah. How how have you built your hiring structure and funnel? Are there are there best practices that uh, that that you would recommend for companies that are struggling with this? How does the funnel work? How does the decisioning work? How do the considerations around diversity actually work at a at a granular level at the maybe the hiring point or the management point or whatever it is? Yeah, I think the first thing, the first sort of advice is you got to start early, right? And so um, uh, because you know people from diverse backgrounds will look at the at face value, literally at face value, at the composition of a team and make some assumptions about whether they would be welcome there, right? And so to be the first one, and I've been the first many, many times, it's a really uncomfortable position. Nobody wants to be first, yeah. right? And so if you have a team of all guys, um, that first female hire is gonna be difficult. And the bigger the team of all guys is, the harder it is to start to create diversity. So. I see teams and I see founders early on, your sense of urgency, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go. It's actually, the, the, that's the moment at which you should decide, like what is the composition of the team I'm trying to build? And how do I take the time now to start to reflect that early? Because you know, we, we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, like diversity is really representation. Representation really, really matters and it begets more representation. Um, if you think about the way that people hire um, and we know this, it's, it's driven by heuristics more often than not. It's like, I like to hire people who are like me. Sure. 
right? Um, and often that's behavioral, educational, but often it's also just like, you remind me of me a couple of years ago. I think you're going to make a great PM, you yeah. know? And, um, and so if you, if you think that like some proportion of hiring, especially when you're moving quickly, is heuristic driven, which means it's bias driven. Um, if you have a team that is balanced, that bias actually works in your favor for perpetuating it over time, right? And so it's not to say you don't have to do the work, but it is to say that like starting early is so, so, so important. Um, so that's thing number one. I think the second is, is being really explicit and intentional about what your desires are and what your beliefs are around diversity. I think a lot of companies put the sort of requisite, like, we care about diversity, we hire people, blah, 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 like, and they just throw it on a website and then call it a day. Um, that's not it. Like, everybody at CityBlock, hiring managers, um, individual contributors, man, like, everybody talks about how important diversity is to us because it matters. And it matters to our business, right? Um, remember, we're serving a population of folks that reflects lower-income populations, people of color, people with complex needs. Like, in order for us to engage with them well, we have to be representative in some way, shape, or form. And so it was a business priority. We made it clear that it was a business priority for us to have a diverse company and explain to people why it translates into overall our success. And then we talk about it and we think about it and we um, problem solve around it. We look at the data around diversity every step along the funnel, every promotion cycle. We audit our promotions to see who was put up for promotion. Does it reflect the demographics of the, of the population of our workforce as a whole? Who was selected for promotion? Does that reflect, like, are there some anomalies here that are surprising? Did we, you know, under, did, did we see an underrepresentation of some group uh, as we look at who was put up for consideration? Was there um, an underrepresentation of those folks who were then selected? Like, let's just understand that. Let's have more conversation. Um, and so really making sure that, that it's not just a by the way and we put it on a thing, but it's actually like embedded within our practices was really important. Um, we've tried different approaches to, to sort of standardizing the hiring process. But the thing, the most effective approach has been to say we require that the funnel and the pipeline of talent is diverse. So you cannot hire a job for a job where you did not see a diverse slate of candidates. Um, that's been just critical because all we're looking to do is create an equal opportunity, equal playing field for diverse candidates. And we're putting the onus on our teams upstream to go find people who have the skills, have the qualifications, have the capacity to do the work who represent diversity in that organization. Bring them all together and let them compete for the job. And sure enough, like we, you can beget, you can create the outcomes that you want to get just by ensuring that that funnel is nice and diverse. Those are the types of things that we've done that have been really important. Really important, though, alongside that, that is, what do you do to retain talent? And how do you ensure that you're creating an environment that's inclusive? Um, and that has been just as important as the, the, the sort of representation part for us. Um, and again, it comes back to what are our programs? What are our systems for supporting people? How do we think about, we, we've leveraged um, employee resource groups. They're incredible. We've got a number of ERGs across a whole host of dimensions of identity, not just race, um, disability status, our veterans ERG, our faith-based ERG. It's just a really warm, cross-organizational kind of opportunities for people to just share, build affinity, and also create awareness for other groups, right? And so there's a lot of um, uh, work that happens across these ERGs. We compensate the leadership roles there. So people are incentivized to do it. And we recognize that work because often people of color in particular 
in organizations are asked to do extra work on behalf of the company to bring in diversity, to mentor, to what have you, and, it's, and it becomes a burden. And, and there's data that shows actually that the people who volunteer for those roles um, are sometimes disadvantaged in terms of their ability to um, advance their careers and because it seems like they're distracted. Oh, right? totally. I mean, it, 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 you can't manage what you don't measure, right? right? And so managing the pipeline and all that. That's but right. it is interesting with the ERGs and making sure you have a diverse hiring panel uh, of people that are actually in the room and making mm -hmm. those decisions. It goes back to your first point of if you don't start early, then you're overburdening. Not only is it hard to be that first person for all the, you know, whatever in office type things to stand yeah. out, but then also you get tasked with That's right. always interviewing, you get tasked with That's all right. the ERGs, you get tasked with all yep. the, and so it ends up being an undue amount of burden that's right. gets put on you that is uh, not the core job that you signed that's up right. for, right? That's right. Yeah. Uh, how, how do the ERGs actually work? How, how do they actually manifest themselves within yeah. the, so, I'm sure everyone's a little unique, but. Yeah, so we've got, so they they all have their own um, little names and um, and and uh, they elect a leader, a couple leaders. So it's, a, it's typically a dyad um, for the year. Um, they, um, the, the ERGs have regular meetings, they schedule um, uh, events, they collaborate across each other. Um, uh, and so, and, and, and it's company-wide, it's individuals to the ERG. There's just a whole host of ways that they show up. Um, and then we provide actual like project management support to them. So if they're, um, if, if, if it's, you know, Black History Month or something like that, like we will, um, uh, we'll, we'll provide support to the, the ERG to create company-wide events, um, to, to, to create awareness around the issue and the topic. Um, it's just been, we have, I think it's about 40% of our workforce. Um, are part of at least one ERG. It's oh. really like the engagement is huge and folks are really, um, I think, find it to be a, a really fantastic opportunity. My partner, Elliot, who uh, led our investment in, uh, in CityBlock, I think uh, he said, I asked him before we did this uh, questions and he wasn't particularly helpful with questions, <laughs> but uh, he, he did say you are uh, one of the most uh, inspiring leaders that, he's, uh, that he's, he's ever had a chance to interact yeah. with or work with. Uh, and that the people within CityBlock would run through walls for you is at least his perception uh, on this. I guess any any lessons for um, executives, other CEOs, people that are um, aspiring to be in these leadership roles about how to go about setting an example? I get the feeling for you, like the mission, and there's a level of authenticity that that exists with what you're doing. But anything that you would you would say has been uniquely helpful in, in mm -hmm. sort of setting an example for the company? Well, first of all, those are really kind words. I'm, I'm very grateful for them. Um, you know, I think the, I think there's two things. Um, so the first I think is, is your point about authenticity, right? It's taken me a long time, um, to get to a place where I'm just comfortable being me and showing up as I show up. Um, you know, we can't, can't sort of hide my own identity, right? As a it's black. exhausting. The, I just don't, I just, you know, like for so long, there's, I, there's nobody like me ever in the room. No one looks like me in the room. So how do I show up? How do I, what do I, how do I sound? What do I talk about? How do I show myself? And having the confidence to do that um, has taken a long time. And so I think authenticity, your point is really important, right? Like I'm here doing this work. I'm an accidental entrepreneur. I didn't, asked for this. I didn't ever wake up, you know, as a young person being like, I want to be a CEO of it. That's not it. I'm here because I care deeply about the work that we're doing. And I believe we have a, like a unique once in a generation opportunity to shift the paradigm 
for marginalized populations and to do so in a sustainable and scalable business model. Like I'm really committed to the business part of this because it is so tied into the mission. And, and, and so that's been, that, that's, that's key, right? It's like showing up like pretty authentic about who I am, why I'm here, what I care about, and helping people understand how those two things tie together, how their job and how their focus on metrics and performance and outcomes and how our business performance is affirming of the mission, right? Like these things are tied together. And I think I'm uniquely positioned to tell that story, but it comes from a very personal place, right? I really believe in this. I think that's the first. I think the second for me has been, I say this to, you know, to founders and CEOs, you have to figure out how to master yourself and your energy. It's an exhausting job. And, um, and you know, Elliot and I have laughed about this retreat that I went on or whatever, and I've, I've, I've tried many things, um, but figuring out you know, how to stay balanced, how to be present, how to be rested, and how to be your best self every single day while you're doing really, really hard work, um, for me has been key. And, and it's, you know, self-care is kind of like cliche, and I think a little, it's not quite descriptive of this. To me, it's actually about self-mastery. You know, um, and, you know, I hate to tell people, but like, it's, it's the stuff they all tell you. It's like sleep, exercise, um, like really good social relationships outside of work, good balance, lots of water, like all that stuff really matters, right? Like we can't lead if we're the kind of folks who show up every day and nobody knows what persona you're going to inhabit and you're yelling and flipping out and stress. Like, that's just not it. Like this is, this is hard work. People need consistency. And they deserve a leader who is ma- has mastered their emotions such that they can show up their best. Well, Dr. Toyin Ajayi. Just Toyin is good. Toyin. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. This is great. Covered a lot of ground. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you making time and going through all this stuff. Thank you. It's That's an inspiring really story, a unique business. And uh, we are very fortunate to be along the journey. It's been it's taken, I've tried to be sensitive to doing too much uh, red point propaganda uh, <laughs> uh, portfolio companies. But I've wanted to have you on for a while because the, the story, your, your background, the mission, all that stuff is so impressive. So thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So that'll do it for the 53rd episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Thank you to Dr. Toyin Ajayi for coming on. Thank you to Justin and Rashad for their efforts with the show. And thank you to everyone for for listening, for supporting the show. And uh, look forward to seeing you back here next week on the 54th episode of The Logan Bartlett Show. Have a good weekend, everyone.